Welcome to Indoor Voices, presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. Join us as we explore the great indoors and talk to experts about how to improve our indoor environments. Welcome to Indoor Voices, uh, another episode brought to you by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about life cycle costing and some more um, with uh, Mike Johnson, the Director of Sustainability at 3Form. And Mike, just to get to know you and the folks listening to get to know you a little bit better, can you tell us what 3Form does? Yeah, absolutely. So 3Form, uh, we are a manufacturer of customizable and high-end architectural products, high design. Uh, we do uh, everything from PETG panels to acrylic panels, uh, polycarbonate panels, we do glass panels, acoustic products. We also have a lighting division called Light Art uh, and a, uh, a another division called uh, Reform Elements. So quite a few things, all for the architecture and design community. There we go. So follow-up question on the last one, because this is burning in my mind. What does the day in the life of the director of sustainability at Freeform look like? What's what do you do every day? Well, that's uh, it, it, you know varies quite a bit because we're actually a family of three companies. Um, like I said, everything from custom lighting on over to manufacturing of architectural goods. Uh, so uh, really, I'm responsible for looking out on the entirety of our footprint, and by, and by that. You know, we can choose to have um, less of an environmental footprint, or we can also even choose to have a, a benefit in terms of our presence in the marketplace and in the world. So uh, we're trying to look out for social equity programs, as well as the health of our employees, the health of our clients. We want to make sure that our carbon and water footprints are minimized whenever possible. Um, all, obviously, our employee engagement has got to be really high. Uh, you know, with, with several hundred employees spread out across North America, it's really key that they are bought into our issues. So I spend a lot of our, my time on education and engagement in our various facilities and among our, uh, our representatives out in the marketplace. I do a lot of hands-on things as well in terms of product disclosures, product documentation, lifecycle analysis. Um, and then, you know, just kind of globally, like looking forward, what are we doing now and how has the impact been and what can we do better? How can we continually improve to make sure that we're meeting the, the triple bottom line in our case, uh, our triple bottom line is people, product, and planet. We want to make sure all three of those are truly aligned whenever possible uh, for the benefits of all. And that's a ton of things, right, that you just gave us. Uh, I'm going to key in on one initiative that I know that you're involved in, and that's uh, the Living Product Certification. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, you know, I think it's one of the most um, exciting challenges out there for manufacturers right now. And uh, in essence, the philosophy behind it is we can limit our footprint um, in our manufacturing process and our products, or we can look at going to net zero so that the net result of producing and manufacturing products has no impact on the planet. Um, or we can really try to be proactive uh, and really truly address the damage that has been done to our environment and to social equity and to human health and look at our products from a measurement standpoint first and understand how much impact we have in all of those categories. And then taking a deeper dive from a scientific standpoint and figuring out how can we eliminate some or all of those negative impacts? And then how can we go beyond that? How can we actually start to restore, repair, and regenerate our planet while protecting human health or enhancing it, and while protecting or, or enhancing social equity simply by manufacturing? So um, succinctly said, or, or in a summary statement, by manufacturing a product, we want to scientifically prove 
that the planet and our communities are left in better condition than had we not made the product at all. Wow. Wow. So, so, so in my mind, it just doesn't seem achievable. I'm going to use a term you've used before. You call it kind of the holy grail of manufacturing. Um, and again, this may be an open-ended question. Is it, is it worth pursuing? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tackle that question from, from several different perspectives. First of all, just to kind of emphasize what you said about it being difficult to achieve. Uh, the analogy I like to give people is, you know, imagine earning your whole paycheck for the month and then going home and spending your entire paycheck and then pulling out your credit card and spending a little bit more, but somehow ending up positive in your bank account after all that, like, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? Um, so is it achievable? Yes. Uh, is it difficult to achieve? Yes. Is it worthwhile? There, you, you, We cannot underscore enough that we, that we must do this. Um, we are going to achieve Earth Overshoot Day sometime, I believe, in this month, this year. So roughly halfway through the year, we will have overshot the Earth's capacity to support our life, period. Uh, we just can't, the earth cannot, can no longer keep up with our consumption of our natural resources. And, and our population is now nearing 8 billion people on the planet. So when it comes down to, is it worth it? Uh, it's not only worth it, it's necessary. Uh, we really have to um, re-engage every tool that we have at our disposal to limit our footprint and then start looking at how we can leave a positive benefit behind so we can repair the damage that has been done. Um, the architecture and design industry, you've probably heard these figures before. We are responsible for roughly 40% of all climate emissions globally every single year. Uh, and building material manufacturers, building materials, represent about 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions every single year. Uh, to reach the 2030 goals uh, set by the IPCC, in other words, to keep that global warming index under 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, on average, we need to start reducing by about 10% per year through 2030 globally and annually. So if you were able to, to affect even 5% of our footprint as an industry, we've got it covered. We, you know, we, we have the solutions, Brian. Um, it's just a matter of really marketplace acceptance and marketplace demand and how people choose their products and what companies they support. And if they're supporting those that are going net positive, or making optimized products, um, then we're gonna we're gonna achieve those reductions much more quickly than otherwise would be achieved. And we we have to do this. This is not a this is not an if and or but. We must do this for the future. No, I love it because you've given us a broad uh, answer there as to some of these goals. And the next question I'm gonna ask you about is one small tenant, right? Life cycle costing is one small tenant. We talk about life cycle costing at Millicare in our value proposition and say, hey, we can extend the usable life of your floors and keep them out of uh, landfills. But what is life cycle costing? How does a company typically calculate life cycle costs? And now that we know, you know, saying who cares, you know, saying how does this impact us? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I prefer that people really think of uh, approach life cycle analysis from, from a whole philosophy standpoint, as opposed to uh, a dry scientific methodology. Uh, because if, if you see it as dry science, it's, it's very hard to engage with. But if you look at it from kind of a holistic philosophy of how to engage with what you consume every day, uh, it really changes the picture. And it's, it's as simple as, you know, if, if I had a cup of coffee right here, uh, this, is, this happens to be water, but if I had a cup of coffee right now, um, 
there's a couple of ways that I could get that, right? I mean, I could get it from a standard source uh, or I could make sure that that cup of coffee is organically certified um, and that it's rainforest certified uh, so that, you know, the creatures can live where they're supposed to be living and contributing to uh, a healthy a healthy climate and a healthy ecosystem. I can make sure that the workers that uh, grow that coffee are fair trade paid uh, and treated so that they can actually afford to live on the land and not do development. Um, and then I could say also make sure that that hot water is coming from solar water or from some sort of renewable energy. The footprint of that coffee that I just described is so much less than if I just drove to like a drive through coffee hut where the beans are, are not certified anything and the hot water is coming from fossil fuels. It's a massive difference. So to get to the core of the question, using that analogy as an example, if we understand how something is made, then we can measure it. We can measure its footprint all the way from the energy used to the water used to all the ingredients that are used. We can trace those things and we can put a number on them. Uh, and when we have a number, we now have the baseline and we can start to reduce that number. And then when we reduce that number to zero or close to zero, then we can start doing other things that bring that into negative territory. So um, life cycle analysis is, it sounds boring and dry, uh, and it's a whole lot of inventory taking and a whole lot of number crunching. So it's, it's, it's a bit like accounting. But the net result, the philosophy, the underpinning idea uh, is that by understanding how we're making impacts or how we're damaging the, the environment, we can actually begin to reduce it, measure the reductions, and get better all the time. So it's, to me, it's a really exciting philosophy. No, that's great. So, so what type, type of companies pay attention most to life cycle costing and, and does it actually help them? Yeah, uh, another great question. So, um, you know, there's several ways to use this and uh, a lot of the biggest companies in the world have been using it for a very long time because when you understand life cycle impacts and life cycle costs, you also understand how to reduce the risks to your supply chain. Um, the pandemic showed us more than ever how, how fragile our supply chains are. So if you can relocalize, for example, or diversify uh, where you're coming from and reduce your environmental footprint, you're going to be a much healthier company. Um, leading manufacturing, I'm sorry, that's a, you know, a, a well-known approach to manufacturing, uh, really is also about life cycle. How do we reduce waste? How do we reduce inputs? How do we reduce uh, energy consumption, water consumption? Uh, because eventually, you're also reducing the risks associated with your organization. You're taking out your pollution risks, your fine risks, um, any of your compliance risks also begin to get mitigated. So, you know, most large companies have been using some variation of this for a long time. To the product level, uh, the product level lifecycle analysis are becoming more common now uh, than ever before in architecture and design uh, due to some really great challenges like, uh, like lead version 4.0 and lead version 4.1, uh, the well building certification, the living building challenge, um, those are all helping to drive that for architecture and design in the built environment. And manufacturers are, uh, are responding, you know, some more aggressively than others, but quite a few of us. No, that's great. That's great. Because that dovetails into one of my next questions. So how does life cycle costing like relate to the built environment, right? It sounds like that if we reduce waste, we can reduce costs, but it may not be as easy as it sounds. But how does it relate to the, the built environment? Yeah, so let's go back to... Um, Let's talk about the climate crisis again for a minute uh, to really underscore that, because that's, uh, you know, in my opinion, driving everything that we need to be concerned with right now. Uh, and when you look at a building's footprint, uh, you know, if you're looking at an operational life between here and 2050 or 2060, 
you're going to have about 80% or a vast majority of that footprint in your first years, in your first eight to 10 years, because you are constructing the building with materials. So that huge hunk of embodied carbon and embodied energy and all that impact that happens when we manufacture goods to make a building, that's already spent by the time the building is opened for the very first time. Um, that will be called embodied carbon of, of, of a building. After that embodied carbon, once the building is operational, then you have your operational footprint. Um, your operational footprint has a much longer tail. Uh, so you don't have that front load anymore. You have a long load. And that long load, we can address the things that we've been doing for the last 50 years pretty well uh, in terms of energy efficiency um, and indoor air quality. We've been, we've been doing a pretty good job of that. We can do better, of course. Uh, it's that embodied energy up front that we have to address now if we're going to meet those 2030 goals um, and if we're going to really stabilize our climate. So that's where life cycle uh, analysis is so critically important right now from product level because we need to bring down that front load at 80% as quickly and as dramatically as possible. No, I love it. I love it. And so I think this is perfect because I'm going to bring back in something that you said earlier, right? So... So, so knowing that we want to reduce costs, reduce waste, knowing how it relates to the built environment, you said it earlier, but tell us a little bit more now about this living building challenge. Yeah, uh, living building challenge, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely inspirational. And um, you referred earlier as to something that seems impossible. This is one of those challenges that on the surface seems impossible, but there are several hundred of them now around the world up and operating. I've had the pleasure of touring a couple of them. Um, and in essence, this is, these are entire projects from, from the, the site chosen site development all the way through operation uh, that have been designed and built that are net positive. In other words, the very existence of that building, whether it's a home or commercial building, whatever it might be, is actually contributing to restoring the environment as it's existing. And the, the environment is literally left in better condition than had a building not been placed in the first place. Um, so you can imagine... Um, a building that is not tied to any municipal water source, that is closed loop completely. Um, you can imagine a building that produces 105% of the energy it consumes on site from renewable on site sources. Um, you're looking at a building that is net climate positive. In other words, it helps reduce the climate uh, greenhouse gas emissions through other sources. Um, it enhances uh, human health and social equity. Um, everything about this is just seems inspirational until you walk into a building where it's actually happening. Um, the Bullet Center in Seattle is probably one of the, the best known examples. Uh, it has been uh, net positive since since day one, um, all the way down to even their waste systems. When, when uh, you use the restrooms there, it is all processed on site. It never leaves the building. Um, and then when it's done, they actually have a compost ready final byproduct that's ready to go into a garden. Um, so it's, these things are, are here, they're available today, the technologies are here, it just requires more of us to really adopt the challenge, understand the critical nature of doing it, and look to those who have led, and follow them, and, you know, and continue to improve upon this. So the Living Product Challenge goes with the Living Building Challenge, marry those two together, and uh, you, we're starting to get somewhere, we're starting to really make some progress. Mike, you're the first one to tell me about the living building and the living product challenges. So I'm going to spice this conversation up just a little bit and speculate, right? Class A space is opening back up. 
hybrid work models are being considered and therefore real estate is being reassessed. Could the living building approach gain some popularity? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a could. I think it's uh, it's already happening. You know, we're seeing um, very large institutions and corporations. You know, one of them happens to be an information technology company that uh, I'm sure uh, you can deduce who I'm referring to. Um, they have done a really great job of becoming a leader in, in marketplace demand creation. Uh, within the living building challenge, you could choose to do all of the imperatives or you can just choose to do some imperatives. One of those imperatives is the materials imperative. Um, and they have done a wonderful job at selecting materials that meet the criteria for living building challenge. Uh, there's lots and lots of other large organizations that are doing that. Software giants are doing that. Uh, retail giants are doing that. Um, so we're already seeing a tremendous amount of interest. Whether or not they take on the entire uh, living building challenge imperatives, that's a bigger issue, um, especially when it comes to like reopening of class A. Uh, you know, a lot of these buildings are already up, they're already running. So uh, those design teams don't necessarily have the ability to meet all of the imperatives, but rather they can meet the ones that are accessible and doable uh, and can transform a space that is, that is now going to be uh, biophilic, so nature-friendly to human beings inside. Um, it's going to have uh, great indoor air quality and human health attributes, and it can be restorative to the environment uh, in terms of climate, water, and energy. Wow, wow, like, like blowing my mind that this actually exists. And there's, you know, there's full science behind it. It's, it's actually an emotion we just need to know. Um, you, were, you were listing off a couple of things earlier. One of the things you had mentioned was social equity. So my next question is just kind of how social equity is wrapped up in sustainability initiatives that are taking place in the built environment, right? I understand sustainability in the built, the built environment, but I don't know that everyone can connect the dots on how social equity works its way in. Could you, could you help us with that? Yeah, I, I, I can. Um, and, you know, I'll start off by saying that social equity has been uh, uh, very often overlooked in sustainability. Um, and it's one of the shortcomings of, of the entire uh, movement, if you will, for a very long time. Um, social equity has its host of problems when it comes to manufacturing and the built environment. Uh, it's no secret that um, most of the underprivileged communities uh, are where you're going to find the heaviest manufacturing and the heaviest impact from manufacturing facilities, uh, and also therefore the most pollution and exposure to pollution um, and the most underserved communities aren't able to afford the efficiency measures and aren't able to afford the siting. Uh, and that's just in the United States ground. I mean, we're not talking about the world conditions. So um, kind of that's a, a bit of a preface to say that uh, as we grow towards that number, I said 8 billion people is projected now by 2023 and 8.5 billion is protected by 2030. As we grow towards that number, we have to be um, more cognizant than ever that if we don't start getting more social equity across the line in every aspect of life, we're going to see a lot more uh, um, disillusionment and a lot more problems as people try to develop and get to the baseline that some people are living. So when it comes to the built environment, there's really like a couple ways that this can be done uh, with strong effect, not strong enough effect, but strong effect. Um, one of those is looking at diversity equity and inclusion in your metrics, in your company, in your projects. Um, are we displacing people by putting up, you know, uh, renovations in green spaces that they can no longer afford? That That's not fair. Um, 
as from a manufacturing standpoint, are we looking at the human health aspects of the entire supply chain and all the ingredients along the whole way to make sure that um, underprivileged communities aren't bearing the brunt of, uh, of the health impacts of our final products? Um, are we doing outreach into third world communities looking for indigenous goods uh, and know-how that we can purchase from them while maintaining their quality of life and even giving them um, new benefits that they never had. You know, it's it's not difficult for manufacturers that have to plug in to social programs that increase the uh, the quality of life of people while decreasing the need for them to develop very quickly. Um, these can be done through so many mechanisms, whether it's uh, carbon and, and and water offsets with you know, with social additionalities. It can be done through the support of nonprofit organizations. Uh, it could be completely philanthropic, um, or like I mentioned earlier, we can actually make an effort to go out there and uh, use our supply chain purchasing power to find underprivileged communities or those communities that are doing things right for their people. Um, so, and then all the way up to the other end of the spectrum, you know, each and every one of us works for our company or an organization or a firm. Do we have an eye out for the true diversity um, and the true equity and inclusion of our colleagues and our employees. Um, because if we don't, again, we're not, we're not going to get the traction we need to understand the needs of all the community uh, and bring those into a more sustainable development for the future. Yeah, I, I love um, your comments on just sourcing and manufacturing and how many people groups that that'll touch around the world as we make products and we make buildings. Um, so, so as you do all the training that you do, do you find that life cycle costing and sustainability resonates with your audiences? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that, um, there's so many things to be discouraged about right now. Uh, you know, like as I'm, as I'm having this conversation with you, Brian, I'm literally surrounded by, uh, poor air quality coming from smoke, coming from the wildfires in the West. Um, and we're in, uh, you know, another of a series of 100-year droughts in the, just in the last couple of years. We've had uh, the hottest 10 years on record in the last uh, 15 years, I think it was. Um, the last two years have been the hottest on record. Um, you know, we saw the social unrest um, here in the United States, but that has been going around, on around the world uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, of course, we have the pandemic. So there, there are so many things to be uh, deeply concerned about right now. One of the things that really does encourage me uh, is coming out, coming into the pandemic when people actually had, I, I guess just to say, sort of ironically, time to slow down and time to to look behind the curtain, so to speak, and start to ask the questions. Um, that has really brought to the forefront interest uh, and the desire for people to do something. They don't know what necessarily, they don't know how necessarily, uh, but the interest is overwhelming. Um, you know, and when, when we're able to talk to people just about their everyday activities. Talk to them about the clothes that they buy and the impact of the fashion industry. Talk to them, you know, again, about that cup of coffee and the, the difference you can make by uh, choosing fair trade and organic versus standard coffee, uh, all the way up to the built environment. When we're talking about life cycle analysis and we're showing them an optimized EPD, optimized environmental product declaration, for example, or we're showing them a living, living product certified product, we're showing them possibilities and the hunger is great. I've never seen hunger like this from the, from the architecture and design community as I have in the, in the last 16 months, but 
the last three months have been uh, overwhelming as, as people are returning to work. I, I don't believe that people, most people want to go back to the way it was. I think most people want to have uh, a clear and hopeful path to solving all these problems. No, that's wonderful. I was, I was going to ask you, you were saying what other initiatives you're excited about or what's the call to action, but there's just been so much from you today, Mike. I appreciate you coming on and, and, and listening to my questions and, and giving us full answers today. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Anytime at all. And I, when I sign off, I usually say thanks for exploring the great indoors with us. But I think you've not only helped us to explore it, but also enhance what our indoor air quality, what our indoor life can look like. So well, I appreciate it. I, I hope so. You know, and um, it, it's, it's pretty well known as a kind of a, a side topic that minimalization tends to make people a little bit happier. So, you know, I think if we if we again go back to the idea of life cycle analysis or, or life cycle inventory, thinking about products, where they actually came from, what it actually took to create them. Um, you know, if, if, if we narrow our cup collection down to a few favorites, what ends up happening is we actually end up appreciating those items more and more. Uh, and that continually starts to reduce our impact because we don't replace them. Um, we don't need to replace these things as often as we're doing. Uh, and, you know, that can be done on the most basic personal level, all the way up to the most complicated professional or agency or organizational level. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope this it helps people think in a new light uh, because I think people will be a lot happier when they are. Awesome. Thanks yeah. again, Mike, for exploring Thanks the great doors with us. Yeah. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and subscribe. This podcast is an audio only version of the Indoor Voices interview series presented by Millicare Floor and Textile Care. You can watch the video of this interview and find other episodes at millicare.com slash indoor voices.